Common Law Wives and Concubines, Essays on Covenantal Christianity and Contemporary Western Culture, Stephen C. Perks. This is a Reconstructionist radio production with lrnteach.com. Please visit kuiper.org forward slash books to download or purchase this book. Common Law Wives and Concubines, Essays on Covenantal Christianity and Contemporary Western Culture, Stephen C. Perks, 2010, Kuiper Foundation, Taunton, England, narrated by Nathan Conkey. Chapter 14. The Church as a Community of Faith And in those days, when the number of the disciples was multiplied, there arose a murmuring of the Grecians against the Hebrews, because their widows were neglected in the daily ministration. Then the twelve called the multitude of disciples unto them, and said, It is not reason that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Wherefore, brethren, look ye out among you seven men of honest report, full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom, whom ye may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And the saying pleased the whole multitude, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Ghost, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch, whom they set before the apostles. And when they had prayed, they laid their hands on them. End quote. Acts chapter 6, verses 1 to 6. Quote, when the unclean spirit is gone out of a man, he walketh through dry places, seeking rest, and findeth none. Then he saith, I will return to my house from whence I came out. And when he is come, he findeth it empty, swept and garnished. Then goeth he, and taketh with himself seven other spirits, more wicked than himself. And they enter in and dwell there. And the last state of that man is worse than the first. Even so shall it be unto this wicked generation. End quote. Matthew chapter 12, verses 43 to 45. Compare Luke chapter 11, verses 24 to 26. There is, in Britain today, a discernible decline of the Christian faith. This problem is not new. It goes back at least to the beginning of the 20th century, and probably the root causes back as far as the Enlightenment. But it is only now that we are beginning to see where the abandonment of Christianity as the prevailing worldview of society will take us. There is a settled, almost institutionalised antipathy to the Christian faith in Britain today. One can see this at many levels. Politically, in the type of legislation that is being passed and the social engineering that is increasingly taking place in family life, where the Christian family is now not only considered old-fashioned, but actually in a minority. Childless marriages and one-parent families are now more numerous than our heterosexual two-parent families in the kind of education that is provided in the state schooling system and indeed, for the most part, in the private schooling system and in the media, which in many ways has been in the vanguard of promoting the permissive society and the overthrow of Christian morality. And along with this, there is a tolerance for almost everything that sets itself up in opposition to the Christian faith. Political correctness has created an ethos in which people no longer feel that they have the liberty to speak freely about many issues that are of 
grave concern for the future of the British nation. A good example of this last point was the attempt by the British government at the end of 2001 to introduce a, quote, religious hate law, unquote, that would have effectively outlawed Christian evangelism, which already suffers badly at the hands of the authorities. The fascist state now looms large on the British landscape. To put this another way, we could say that the British nation is now well advanced on the road to re-paganisation. I suspect that this phenomenon is more widespread than Britain, however, I think it is a Western problem and may very well be a worldwide problem. It seems that at the beginning of the 21st century there is a worldwide decline of the Christian faith and the churches on the whole have been unable to do anything realistic about this situation. After two official quote decades of evangelism unquote the church in Britain is still in decline. Furthermore the church has been hijacked and stripped of a role in society by the secular humanist state though it has to be admitted that the church did not really put up much of a struggle against this and has even condoned it by promoting socialist ideology as a quote Christian unquote model for social organisation. Why people should take the church or her message seriously given the fact that she has abdicated her responsibilities so willingly to the secular humanist state seems not to have crossed the minds of our church leaders. Add to this the fact that the church is virtually destitute of any prophetic message to the nation anymore and it is not really surprising that the church is so irrelevant to the lives of most people. The salt has thoroughly lost its saltiness. Finding the correct answer to this dilemma is the most pressing problem facing the church in Britain today, though, for the most part, the real nature of the problem is not even recognised by Christians. How to get more people into church on Sundays and bolster the already ineffective and irrelevant institutional church seems to be the main consideration of Christians, not how to change the nation. How to disciple the nation to Christ is not on the church's agenda at all today. The nearest that Christians get to this usually is snatching brands from the fire, saved souls, who are then left to waste their lives as if they had never turned to Christ. Yet, Christ's great commission to his church was the command to disciple the nations, not to snatch brands from the fire. I dare say that the great commission has never been so neglected by the church in Britain as it is today and probably in the West generally. Given this fact, we must surely see the church's decline as the inevitable consequence of our own short-sightedness. If the church is to recover from this decline, she must identify the cause and rectify the defect. What I have to say here is an attempt to identify this problem and propose the biblical solution to it. The Bible gives us a picture of the Christian church as a community of faith, a community with all the problems that beset human society in a fallen world. The picture of the church given us in the New Testament is not a cosy ideal, an unrealistic pretend community. 
That is often what the church tries to create by refusing to face the real issues that confront her. But the church, as presented in the pages of Scripture, is a real community, functioning redemptively in a fallen world. That is why I chose the reading from Acts chapter 16 verses 1 to 6. What we have here is a real community dealing with real issues in a biblical manner. The church of the New Testament was not perfect by any means. Just look at them, arguing and complaining about who gets the most food. The issue was welfare. Oh yes, that thorny old issue that the modern church has now neatly sidestepped by handing it all over to the state. But what did the apostles do about this? Well, they recognised, first of all, that it was a responsibility of the church. They did not say, quote, Hum, this is not a spiritual issue. We must give ourselves to preaching the word and prayer. Tell them to go and get some state handouts, unquote. They said, quote, We must give ourselves to the word and prayer, so we shall appoint some appropriate people in the church to deal with the problem, end quote. Verse 2. They dealt with the problem as a community of faith. They recognised it was a problem for the church to deal with as a community. Second, they did not relegate the issue to the quote, non-spiritual unquote, issues box. They recognised that this was a spiritual issue needing to be dealt with by people who were full of the Spirit and wise, verse 3, that is, by people who were able to deal with the situation in terms of biblical wisdom. In other words, in terms of a Christian worldview, there was no dualistic split in their thinking. Indeed, such a dualism was not part of biblical culture and would not have been part of the culture of the Jews at this time. Manual labour was not viewed by the Jews in the same way it was viewed by the Greeks, who considered it demeaning. For the Jews of the first century, manual labour was considered God-honouring work, every bit as much as intellectual labour, such as teaching. So, there was no spiritual-slash-secular split in the Apostles' thinking, as there is in much of the Western world today. They recognised that the Church lives in the real world, and has to deal with the problems of the real world, and has to minister to the real needs of the body of Christ. Spirituality was not seen as a preoccupation with some otherworldly dimension, unrelated to the everyday concerns of this world, but rather as the proper attitude to this everyday world, an obedient attitude that dedicates this everyday world to Christ and seeks to live for his honour and glory in it. So we see here that the Christian church in the New Testament inhabited the real world and, and dealt practically with the real issues of everyday life that faced the Christian community. And the New Testament church was prepared to provide help and guidance to people so that they could live out their faith in this world. The church was a community of people living as a community with all the everyday concerns that a community faces. The life of faith in Christ is not a form of escape from the real world in any sense, but rather the proper dedication of this mundane life in all its details and practicalities to Christ. What makes our actions spiritual is our attitude, not the nature of the job we are doing. Now, 
The problem is that the church does not often function this way in Western society, at least in modern times. The church is seen largely as an institution, the main purpose of which is to provide for cultic activity, for example, worship services, baptisms, funerals, etc. By the term cultic here, I am not referring to some form of weird sect or religion. The word is incorrectly used of such groups. The term cultus or cult refers to the system of ritual worship that takes place in church services and meetings. The church in the Western world is defined largely in terms of the public Christian cultus, that is, the system of ritual worship used in church services. The cultus is the paradigm that gives meaning to the church for most people in the Western world, most Christians included. The New Testament, however, does not give us this kind of paradigm for understanding the Christian church and her function in the kingdom of God. It gives us no liturgies, no formulas for cultic activity, nor does it in any other way specify what the public Christian cultus should be like. Yes, it does give us principles for how we are to behave towards each other when we meet together. It tells us that we are to worship and pray together, and the institutional church has the duty to provide for the teaching, edification and equipment of the saints for the work of the kingdom. But this is a far cry from the highly cultic formulas of the modern church. Where then did the church get this cultic paradigm from? The answer to this question is that the church got the cultic paradigm of church activity from the ritual worship of the temple cultus of the Old Testament. Now, I want to make myself clear at this point. I am not saying that the church has merely imitated the sacrificial rituals of the Old Testament temple. This is clearly not the case. There are no blood sacrifices in the ritual worship of the Christian church. What I am saying is that the kind of paradigm that underpinned the temple worship, that is, ritual cultic activity, has been used as the paradigm for understanding and structuring church activity. And many of the features of this type of worship have been incorporated into the church, including the Old Testament concept of priesthood, altars, special clothing, etc. Nor is this something that is only relevant to Episcopal churches. In varying degrees, it also structures Protestant free church activity. But is this the correct paradigm for understanding the church and her role in the Kingdom of God? I do not believe it is. The New Testament talks of apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors and teachers, Ephesians chapter 4 verse 11, as offices in the church. However, these offices were not part of the Old Testament temple cultus. Temple cultus terminated in Christ to whom it pointed. In fact, the central features of the ministry of the offices of the institutional church in the New Testament are the word of God and prayer, Acts chapter 6 verse 4. Proclaiming the word of God and teaching the faith is central to the work of the institutional church. This does not come from the temple. The priests were not primarily ministers and teachers of the word. The Old Testament model for ministry of the word is the prophet, not the priest. It is the prophet who calls the nation to God's word as the principle around which society should structure its life. Now, 
I am not denying the fact that there is an institutional aspect to the church's life. Nor am I saying that there is no place for ritual at all, or that there should be no public Christian cultus. There must always be an expression of corporate public worship in the church's life, and this will inevitably constitute some form of cultus. I am not denying the validity of the public Christian cultus, therefore, but I am saying that this should not provide the paradigm for our understanding of the function of the church, nor should it define the church. But because it often does define the church, I am saying that the balance is wrong, that the cultus has been elevated at the expense of other priorities to a status that is not validated by the New Testament. The New Testament presents the church as a community of faith acting in the whole of life, one aspect of which is corporate worship, the public cultus. The focus of the New Testament is not on the cultic activity of the church, but on the kingdom of God, which functions across the whole spectrum of human life and society. I am not denying the validity of the Christian cultus, therefore, but I am saying that it has been misunderstood and incorrectly modelled on the paradigm of the temple cultus, and that the church has been incorrectly defined by such cultic activity, rather than as a community of people sharing the same faith and structuring their lives and community around God's word. As a result, we have much ritual, much that is not necessary, but little real community, which I think characterise the New Testament church far more than it does modern Western churches. There is much conformity in the ritualised modern churches of the West, but this conformity exists along a serious lack of community. This model is seriously astray. In previous centuries, when close community life was more a feature of society generally, this defect was not so obvious. Indeed, there may not have been the same defect because the Christian worldview was dominant and Western societies were largely made up of Christian communities. This is no longer the case today. The communities that make up our society are not Christian and the prevailing worldview is not Christian. On top of this, community generally is breaking down. Certainly, Christian community has largely gone. But the church has not recognised the problem. She has carried on as if the world has not changed. As a result, the church and her message have become increasingly irrelevant to the real world and its problems. When society and community were generally Christian, the church's infatuation with ritual perhaps did not seem so irrelevant. Today, this is no longer the case. The church, on the whole, at least in Britain, does not address the real world with a decisive message for the world. It merely peddles hellfire insurance. For example, in most of the churches to which I have belonged, the membership has come from a wide catchment area around the church, but few members have actually lived in the community in which the church meets, where the building is. Even churches planted with the specific intention of being a mission to the community in which the building is located 
seldom have had memberships that are drawn mostly from the community that the church supposedly serves. There are two problems with this. First, the church is not really part of the community it claims to be serving, and so does not have a real presence there. Only a few meetings each week that mean nothing very much to the local community anyway. The church's mission is thus something of a pretense. Second, the members of the church who come to the meetings from far and wide do not themselves constitute a real community of faith, which is the leaven needed to affect the dough, that is, the mission community, because they cannot. They live too far apart to constitute or function as a community. What happens in this kind of situation is that the church becomes a mere cult and the faith becomes merely a personal worship hobby for those who attend the meetings. But this situation cannot facilitate the true mission of the church. At best, the message proclaimed will be some form of hellfire insurance. That is, the faith will be restricted to the question, quote, what happens at death? Unquote. Christ is held out as a means of escaping hellfire. But this is a truncated view of salvation, and because of this, an unbiblical one. If the church is to be an alternative community that will act as leaven in society, she must function as a true community of faith. This, I suggest, is the true paradigm for the Christian church given us in the Bible. The ritual cultus is not a biblical model for the life of the church. The temple has gone. The ritual paradigm is the wrong paradigm for understanding the Christian church. I am not saying that there is no institutional church, nor that there should be no public Christian cultus, nor that there is no place whatsoever for ritual in the worship meetings of the church. But I am saying that this should not define the church that the church is primarily a community of faith, and that, although the teaching of the word and prayer, etc., are vital to the life and growth of the church in the faith, unless the church is a community of faith, she ceases to be a church. Great preaching halls and great preachers do not constitute the church on their own. A church is a community of believers living out the faith as a community of faith. Well, this is all well and good, but what should a church be like on the model that I am suggesting? What difference would it make practically? The whole point is that the congregation, the people of God, should function as a community bound together by God's word, not only when they are worshipping corporately in church meetings, held specifically for praise, prayer, teaching, etc., but also in all other aspects of community life. Here are a few examples. They are not meant to be exhaustive, but they do attempt to identify some of the more important areas that, that are presently neglected on the whole. First, the New Testament gives us an important model in Acts chapter 6, verses 1-6. to As we have seen, this passage shows how the church responded to a very specific and practical need. Servants were appointed to provide for those in need. This was how the church dealt with a welfare issue. Welfare is a function of the church, 
Not that the church is the primary agency for welfare. The Bible teaches that the family is the primary agency of welfare. But because the church also is a family, the family of God, she has a duty to those who are needy and without help from their families. 1 Timothy chapter 5 verses 1 to 16. The church functions as an extended family. She must act as a true community. There is also an important welfare function for the church as part of her mission to the non-believing world. Second, another aspect of community life is work, our vocations and businesses. The Jews have often shown us a good example here. They have often functioned as a community of faith far better than Christians have, especially in an unsympathetic environment. But even where the environment has not been unsympathetic, they look after their own, especially in terms of business and work life. They have often shown a better understanding of what it means to belong to a community of faith. Of course, this may often have been the result of persecution, and they do not seem to have the same commitment to evangelism that Christianity has. And this has a tendency to produce a ghetto mentality, which is not something we should imitate at all. Nevertheless, I think a case can be made for the creation of a Christian work environment and business environment that is open and outward-looking, providing an example to the world of how the faith should affect our work and business life. This is especially relevant now because it seems to me that business ethics are virtually at a point of collapse in Britain. Christian ethics and a Christian understanding of one's calling played an important part in the development of the economies of the Western world. The prevalence of the Christian worldview and its code of ethics was important in providing society with a stable foundation for the development of the, for the free market order in particular and a free society generally. Christian ethics have now been cast aside and both society generally and economic and business activity in particular is reverting to forms of economic activity that are often little better than fancy forms of piracy. Business ethics seems to have all but collapsed. Now, of course, the Bible does not say that we may only trade with other Christians or use the services of other Christians, and I am definitely not arguing for this in any way. In fact, as things stand, often Christian business activity is no different from non-Christian business activity. Indeed, Christians in Britain have a poor reputation as businessmen and employers on the whole, which does a very great disservice to the gospel. But it ought not to be this way. It ought to be the case that Christians provide leadership to the non-believing world here as elsewhere. Christian businesses and employers ought to provide both a good witness to the gospel and form part of the Christian community. There is no reason why the wider Christian community should not generate its own economy in many ways. This does not mean that Christians would refuse to deal or trade with non-believers or that Christians would never use business services provided by non-believers. But the consensus created by a significant part of the business and economic communities following the Christian ethic in the way it operates and cooperates as part of the Christian community and the way it ministers to both the Christian community and the non-believing community would be a very significant witness to the faith 
and help create, maintain and promote the growth of the Christian community of faith, which is the leaven that should affect the whole of society. This also is part of our calling to disciple the nation. Third, the education of children is a vitally important aspect of the Christian life. Furthermore, we must recognise also that the Bible does tell us that we are not to be unequally yoked. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14 And this applies to the sphere of business as much as it does to any other area of human life. Third, the education of children is a vitally important aspect of the Christian life. How does the church expect to maintain her influence upon society when she is sending her children to be educated as secular humanists? This is truly one of the most scandalous of all the failures of the modern church. The schooling system in Britain had its origins in the private Christian schools and charity schools that were created by Christian society in the discharge of its Christian responsibilities. This system was largely hijacked by the state, which, when it had taken control of it, proceeded to secularise it, so that now virtually all traces of the Christian faith have been expunged from the system. And it seems that Christians, on the whole, are happy to send their children to these secular schools. This seems to me to be standing the gospel on its head. In all missionary situations, Christians accept that the children of Christian missionaries should be educated as Christians and that the children of those to whom the missionaries are ministering should also be educated as Christians. The idea of permitting a pagan community to educate the children of missionaries who are ministering the gospel to that community so that their children learn to live a non-Christian way of life is absurd and would be condemned by any Christian church. And so, the establishing of Christian schools in the mission field is seen as quite necessary, even essential, to the success of the mission. And yet, when one turns to the home mission, in a society that is now thoroughly secularised and almost as pagan in its own way as any foreign mission field, precisely the opposite happens. The children of Christians are sent to be educated by secular humanists and atheists. Rather than secular humanists educating Christian children, Christians should be establishing schools for educating the children of non-believers. The situation faced by the churches in the Western nations today is a mission situation. The provision of Christian education for Christian children is vital and essential for the progress of the gospel in the Western nations. The church cannot hope to survive without this and it is an abdication of responsibility for Christians to send their children to secular schools. But beyond this, the church also has an opportunity to provide Christian education for non-believers. The nations of the West are mission fields. How has the church failed to see this? It is vital that this should be remedied. I would go so far as to say that this is the most important issue facing the church today in terms of her responsibility to her own children and her wider mission to the world. Fourth, in a similar way, the provision of Christian hospitals and medical services is an essential aspect of the church's mission and has always been seen as such in previous centuries. Christ commanded us, emphatically, 
to preach the gospel and heal the sick. Matthew chapter 10 verses 7 and 8, Luke chapter 9 verse 2, chapter 10 verse 9. Wherever the gospel has been preached throughout the world, the healing of the sick and the establishing of hospitals has gone along hand in hand with it. And the hospital system in Britain was a result of this process. The secular state did not set up a health service, nor did it initiate a hospital building programme in order to create the National Health Service. Rather, it took over, hijacked the existing healthcare system, which was the product of a Christian society. The whole concept of hospitals in Britain had its origin in the mission of the church to heal the sick. Now that the state has taken over this area of life, the Christian values that once built the hospitals and guided their work are being systematically stripped from the National Health Service, just as the Christian values that once underpinned education have been stripped from the education system. The Church must see her mission in this broader context of life as the ministry of the whole Word of God to the whole person in the whole community, rather than as confined primarily to ritual worship, the cultus. Just think of the influence that the Gospel would have if people in our communities were to look to the Church for help for the problems of life instead of to the secular state. What if the Church, rather than the state, dispense welfare to the needy according to Christian work ethics in our society? What if, instead of children being sent to secular humanist school to be taught that the world and all things in it are autonomous and have no relation to God or His Word, and that, at best, the Christian faith is a private matter, people sent their children to be educated at Christian schools to be taught how to structure their lives in society around God's word? What if people worked for Christian companies pursuing Christian ethics and did business with Christian businesses that operated on the basis of Christian ethics instead of secular business ethics, which increasingly resembles piracy in all but name? What if, instead of looking to the secular state, the sick in our society were to look to the church for healing and were to go to Christian hospitals and medical practices when they were ill? What if, when people became Christians and joined the church, they became part of a real community that lived as a community of faith in all areas of life? Would not all this be a much more real and meaningful expression of the Christian message of salvation in our communities? Do you think that the church and the Christian faith would be as it is today, without influence and relevance in our society? Of course not. God's name would be honoured in our nation, hallowed, just as we pray in the Lord's Prayer, quote, Hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, end quote. And the kings of the earth would kiss the sun. The Church will not fulfil the Great Commission until she sees her mission in these broad terms. If Christians were to act in a concerted way in society as a community of faith with a mission in these four areas welfare, education, medical services and business it would have a transformational effect upon the nation. It would be a relevant, practical witness to the faith 
and a demonstration of the church's commitment to building the kingdom of God and a demonstration of the church's commitment to building the kingdom of God in society. Political lobbying will not achieve this. Stopping good laws from being abolished and bad laws being passed will not accomplish anything anywhere near as effective as this kind of activity will. We cannot expect politicians to do what we are not prepared to do as churches. Of course, I am not saying we should not try to stop good laws from being abolished or bad laws from being passed. But unless lobbying and political action takes place in the wider context of the church's mission in all these areas of life, it will achieve nothing of permanent value. Unless Christians are prepared to make the sacrifices for the faith that this wider mission will involve, they will not conquer the world. Christianity is useless to the world as a mere cult, a personal devotion hobby. The purpose of the Christian faith is to glorify God by changing the world and bringing all nations under the discipline of Jesus Christ. Nothing less than this is commanded in the Great Commission. A word of warning here. Jesus told us that when an unclean spirit leaves a man and finds no place to rest, it returns to the house from which it came and, finding it cleaned and swept, takes seven other devils with it, so that the latter state of the man is worse than the former. This is very pertinent to the Christian community and the attempt by Christians to get the evils they perceive in society remedied by government programmes. Many Christians are lazy. They are prepared to support lobbying organisations that will try to coerce the government to do for them what they should be doing for themselves. This is an abdication of responsibility. It is not that lobbying of government is wrong as such, that is, when it is done for the right reasons. But often Christians will lobby for state education to be cleaned up and made Christian. Why? So that they do not have to fulfil their own responsibility to provide a Christian education for their children. The same goes for welfare and healthcare and other spheres of life. So, what will happen if the church is successful in her lobbying? What if she manages to keep a good law in the statute books or prevent a bad law from being enacted? The church may have cast out the devil and swept the house, that is, society, only to find that the devil returns with seven more worse devils, so that the latter condition of society is worse than the former. This is no idle speculation. It is what is happening all the time in Britain. The lobbying of government is quite popular and often initially successful, but the clean house always gets reoccupied by seven more deadly devils so that more lobbying is then required and more funds to finance the lobbying. But the real work of providing alternative Christian education Christian hospitals and medical services, Christian welfare, a Christian presence in the spheres of business and economics, etc., gets neglected for the most part. The house, that is to say the nation, does not get reoccupied by the Christian spirit, so the devils come back. Lobbying and political action without the ongoing work of Christian mission across the whole of life and society 
discipling the nation, in other words, will achieve nothing in the long term, and the latter condition will be worse than the former. We cannot use government to do those things that we should be doing ourselves. The aim of reform of government should be to get it doing those things it should be doing, not giving lazy Christians an easy time. And if we succeed in cleaning up the house by political means, but fail to replace the devil with a Christian presence, the vacuum will be filled by seven worse devils who will use the political system to their own advantage. Wherever the church leaves a vacuum in this way, thinking that such areas are religiously neutral, this is what happens because there are no areas of religious neutrality. Christ is Lord of all and claims ownership of all. As Abraham Cooper said, quote, There is not a single inch of the whole terrain of our human existence over which Christ does not proclaim, Mine! End quote. The Church needs to understand this broad mission to the world. Without engaging in these areas, the decline of the Christian faith will not be halted. These are things that the Church has always done as part of our missions in times past anyway. This is nothing new. I am not asking anyone to consider doing anything that the Church has not always in previous centuries seen as part of our mission to the unbelieving world. The creation of a Christian society, Christian schools, Christian hospitals, the pursuit of Christian work ethics, etc., has always, in the past, been seen as essential to the Church's mission. It is the Great Commission, after all. Why has the Church stopped believing these things and pursuing this agenda? The greatest part of the Christian life of faith is not spent in church, engaging in ritual worship. Rather, it is spent in the world, in the mission field. Unless we seek to make this world a Christian world, a world that structures its life around God's word, our worship services will amount to little more than personal worship hobbies, cults practised in a ghetto. We are not called to be a ghetto, but to disciple the nations. If we are to do this, we must start living as a real community of faith that will act like leaven in society, transforming the nation into a Christian society. This will mean for most of us a great deal of upheaval in our attitudes and thinking and in our practical lives. But there is no alternative that does not amount to neglect of the Great Commission. In other words, disobedience. How long do you think God is going to put up with a disobedient church? Time is running out for Britain, perhaps for the West generally. Does not judgment begin at the house of God? 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 17. The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows, or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce 
including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit reconstructionistradio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His kingdom.